Well, in anticipation of the summer travel season, yahootravel.com has published a list of America's most overrated tourist attractions. Overrated tourist attractions. Number one on the list is Fisherman's Wharf in San Francisco. Coming in second is the Petrified Forest in Arizona. Third is Wall Street in New York City. And fourth on the list is the most overrated of the most overrated tourist stops is Plymouth Rock. Now I've been to three of the top four and for me Plymouth Rock is hands down the lamest tourist destination in America. It's a pitiful specimen of a rock. Trust me, Plymouth Rock is a tourist attraction that just don't rock. History students know that Plymouth Rock is the 1620 landing spot of a group of Protestant Christians from England. They stepped out of their boats into a new world in search of a place to worship God according to the Bible and according to their conscience. They were tired of being oppressed by the Church of England. The pilgrims, pilgrims longed to worship freely and faithfully. In a sense, religious liberty in America was built on Plymouth Rock. And today, folks on holiday from all over the world, they come to Plymouth, Massachusetts to visit this famed piece of history. But when they get there, what a letdown. Now, several years ago, I, I happened to teach at a Calvary Chapel men's retreat in Plymouth, Massachusetts. Ignoring the advice of my host, between sessions, I hiked a couple of blocks down to the memorial. I'm thinking, man, I'm here. I want to see this. But everybody was right. It was a laugher. I mean, Plymouth Rock is a gray, oblong, dirty-looking stone. Maybe three feet by two feet in size. They built this Greek arch over the site, but the stone itself just sits in the sand, just outside of the water. The date 1620 is etched in its side, but that's all. In fact, puny Plymouth Rock has a gate around it to keep people from stealing it. It's just a nondescript stone you otherwise would never notice. I guess in my mind, I expected to see Miles Standish with musket in hand, standing triumphantly on a noble rock cliff, jutting out into the sea. Instead, all I saw was this lame little rock lying on the beach. Well, in 1 Peter chapter 2, we as Christians are called pilgrims. And we are founded on a rock. And as we learned last week... There's nothing lame about our rock. Jesus isn't a Plymouth rock. He is a mammoth rock. In verse 4, Peter calls Jesus a living stone. In verse 6, he is our chief cornerstone, elect and precious. In verse 7, he is the stone that the builders of Judaism rejected, but has become the chief cornerstone of all that God is doing in the world today. In verse 8, for those who reject Jesus as the cornerstone, he will become for them a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. You can't sidestep Jesus. Jesus is the rock that rocks. There's nothing lame about 
the superstone. Jesus is the sure cornerstone on which an enduring life can be built. Plymouth Rock is an overgrown pebble, but Jesus is an El Capitan. And it's upon Jesus that we as spiritual pilgrims have landed our lives. In Christ, we've found forgiveness and freedom. We've left behind an old world of sin and oppression. And we've stepped out into the new world of holiness and happiness and usefulness. Life should never be the same for us. And according to Peter, Jesus is not the only living stone. For his followers, you and me, we're like him. He also calls us living stones. This means that the life of Jesus has been birthed in us. That he makes us alive and strong and solid and rock-like. Do you really understand what Jesus has done for you and in you? Do you understand? This week... I downloaded a new recording on my iPod. I like to listen to my iPod as I, as I run around Lenora Park over there. And this particular song, it's by 10th Avenue North. And as I was listening to this song, I got such hope and such encouragement. I started singing and shouting as I'm running. I got so pumped up. It was so encouraging. I want you to hear these lyrics. You are more than the choices that you make. You are more than the sum of your past mistakes. You are more than the problems that you create. You've been remade. And then he sings the bridge. This is not about what you've done, but what's been done for you. This is not about where you've been, but where your brokenness brings you to. This is not about what you feel, but what he felt to forgive you and what he felt to make you new. For you have been remade. Christians are now living stones. We've been remade, forgiven, and alive, and strong in Christ. You know, in the ancient world, rocks and stones, they were the building materials of choice. And Peter is saying that now that we've been remade, that we've been made fit, God is fitting us all together, one stone upon another, stone after stone. He's building us all into a temple of praise to Him. But here's the question. Are we building our lives on the rock? Are we living on the rock? Are we working on a life that truly rocks? Now, a few verses earlier, Peter laid out our calling. He says, we're a chosen generation, and we're a royal priesthood, and we're a holy nation, and we're a special people. But now he's starting to wonder, are we living up to that birthright? Have we really embraced our calling? You know, sadly, this doesn't happen automatically. I was thinking about this. If becoming a Christian were like climbing a mountain, nobody would ever underestimate its significance. I mean, once you've navigated the thin air and the steep terrain and you've risked your life to scale Mount Everest, you appreciate being on top of the world. But no one becomes a Christian by daring deeds or by risking their life. You see, being a Christian is not climbing a mountain. Jesus is the mountain climber. We're just the onlooker. We're saved because Jesus risked his life for us. He did the daring deed. He climbed the mountain, 
And I might add, dragging a cross behind him all the way. Jesus did the heavy lifting in our salvation. Our job was just to behold and to believe. But once we're on top with him, we should be just as thrilled as if we'd climbed there ourselves. Fellowship with Jesus, knowing God, should be every bit as exciting and breathtaking as if we had risked it all and climbed there ourselves. We should appreciate the vistas every bit as much. And our gratitude should spill over into every arena of our lives. In fact, this is what the rest of the book is about. From here on, Peter is going to get very practical. He's going to talk about practical living and and our gratitude for Jesus and how we live our lives. He's going to talk about being good citizens and obeying the government and respecting your boss and handling persecution and loving your spouse and then loving one another and returning evil with good and leading the church and following our leaders. He's going to teach us that being a Christian doesn't just mean that we've been changed on the inside. It means that we live an outward life that proves that inward change. That our behavior becomes consistent with our beliefs. Peter wants us to know that how we live our lives tomorrow really does matter. In fact, he reaches out to his readers in earnest. In verse 11, he calls them beloved He begs them to understand. Now that that you're a living stone, the question is, are you living on the rock? Are you building a life of faith and freedom on Jesus Christ? And there are three truths to this that are strategic. First is your status as believers. Second is the struggle that you face. And then third the stakes, for the stakes in all this are really high. And this is what he discusses now in verses 11 and 12. Your status, your struggle, and the stakes. Peter writes first about our status in verse 11. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims. Now this is the second time that Peter has used the term pilgrims. In the very first verse of the letter, chapter 1, verse 1, he addresses his letter to the pilgrims of the dispersion. Or literally, the pilgrims that have been scattered abroad. Now during the feast days, Jews obedient to the ancient mandate would journey back to Jerusalem. They would come from all over the world. And it was at such a gathering, the feast of Pentecost, that the master decided to launch his church. The Holy Spirit was poured out on those first followers. Fire was overhead. Praise was overheard. A buzz was in the air. And many of those believers, they hung around. At least until the persecution started. That's when most of these visiting converts returned to their homes. Well now, Peter speaks to them again. This time with pen and parchment. And he reminds them that they're still sojourners and pilgrims. They may be back home, but they're not really home. You see, their status hasn't changed. They're only passing through. They're still sojourners and pilgrims. Guys, whenever persecution raises its ugly head, it is a stark reminder to the followers of Jesus that this world is not our final resting place. 
We are a holy nation, but we're living in an alien and in a hostile environment. Hey, don't be deceived. At times now, for self-serving reasons, the world will snuggle up close to the church. But ultimately, this world is not a sympathizer to the cause of Christ. If this world persecuted the Master, it will also persecute His followers. Christians need to remember that we live behind enemy lines. The word sojourner in verse 11, it means a temporary dweller. Never forget that your passport, your spiritual passport, has been stamped with these words, temporary resident. This world is not our home. Hey, we're traveling through life like little kids in the back seat, and God is the driver of the car. You hit a home run. You win the game. You're suddenly the hero for a moment, and you ask, are we there yet? And God says, not yet. Your first kiss creates goosebumps up and down your spine. And you think, wow, am I there yet? And God says, no, not yet. It's your wedding day, and you're so happy. And you ask, Lord, am I there yet? And God says, not yet. You're on your dream vacation, and you ask, we're almost there, right? And the driver says, no, not yet. When your baby's born, there's such elation. You're so happy. You ask, am I there yet? And God says, not yet. Your baby goes off to college, and you're also very, very happy. I got to be there now. And God says, no, not yet. When the grandbabies come, I've been told, I'll think, this has got to be heaven. But once again, the driver will answer, Not yet. You see, it doesn't matter how great this world gets. It's not our home. We're not home yet. We're a sojourner traveling through. Peter also calls us pilgrims. The word sojourner speaks to the fact that we're headed home. But the name pilgrim describes the way that we get there. Webster's Dictionary defines the word pilgrim as one who travels to a holy place as an act of devotion. You see, a person on pilgrimage in the Holy Land won't just view it as a vacation. He or she will use it as a means of deepening their devotion to Jesus. What makes a trip a pilgrimage is not just the destination, but the person's purpose behind the trip and the person's behavior on the trip. You see, a pilgrimage is a walk of worship. And as believers, we are traveling to the holiest destination of all. We're going to heaven. And Peter's contention is you don't raise hell on the way to heaven. En route to heaven, the goal is to act like you will when you get there. A pilgrim lives life with love in their heart and praise on their lips and humility in their step, and gratitude in their soul, and the glory of God in their sights. It's not just a destination, but it's the attitude on the way that makes us a pilgrim. Now let me provide us this morning some needed perspective. A pilgrim has one allegiance, and that's not to the country through which he passes, but it's to his home country. His heart is fixed on home. His eyes are on the road ahead, not the world around. In fact, there is a certain aloofness 
that characterizes a sojourner and a pilgrim. A traveler is more interested in wings than in roots. They're not looking to settle down in one place. A sojourner isn't thinking too long term. And yet too many Christians, I've noticed, have become overly attached to country and culture. They've gotten too bogged down in the here and now. Here's an example. I'm all for free market economies and American democracy. In fact, I believe that both are ultimately derived from Christian principles. But here's the truth. Throughout the history of the church, the church has lived under all kinds of different governments. And it's maneuvered in all kinds of economic systems. Christianity has spread under kings and under dictators and even in feudal systems. In fact, the greatest expansion of Christianity took place under Roman emperors. Apparently, the power of the Holy Spirit and the preaching of the cross work equally well under communism as they do in a free market society. We're going to learn next week that as Christians, we need to be good citizens. But God doesn't wear red, white, and blue. God's not waving an American flag. God is bigger than any one country. He's bigger than any one system of government. And neither is God limited to a particular culture. All too often, Christians are seen by the world as promoting a sectarian brand of culture. In the minds of many Middle East Muslims, Christianity and Western materialism go hand in hand. Christianity, in their minds, is the white man's religion or the rich man's religion. Not so. It's wrong to portray Christianity as conservative, 1950-ish, white, middle-class American culture. Neither is it 1960s hippie Jesus freak culture. Christianity is growing today among tribal nations, tribal groups in Nigeria. It's growing all across Africa. It's thriving among indigenous Filipinos. Peruvian Indians today are coming to Christ in droves. Here's the truth. Christianity is a belief with no borders. It has no bounds, not politically, not geographically, not culturally. True biblical faith is transcultural and spiritual and eternal. I read of Mike Warnock. He tells of a mission trip that he took where he ministered to poor North African immigrants just outside of Paris. He took the trip just after 9-11, and he was shocked to see little boys reenacting the planes, stretching out their hands and pretending that they were the planes that crashed into the Twin Towers. During his stay, he heard shouts of, Bin Laden is my father. Viva Saddam. Mike has a deep love for his country, and he recoiled when he heard such venomous, anti-American sentiment. But that's when he had to decide. Was his first allegiance to Uncle Sam or to the Lord Jesus? And Mike had to lay aside his American pride in order to share the love of Jesus with these needy Muslims. You see, as travelers passing through, we need to remember that Christianity's headquarters is not of this world. The here and now is not our home. I love our country, but I love heaven more. Heaven is my first obligation. The church's challenge is to navigate 
in always shifting political and cultural landscapes while founding our values on the eternal rock. Never forget, your status in this world is sojourner and pilgrim. But we also face a struggle. In fact, Peter writes, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. And boy, this term, fleshly lusts, well, it just sounds bad, doesn't it? Fleshly lusts. Man, that just sounds bad. It sounds evil. It's, it's like fleshly lust. It's like another name for some perverse sexual fetish. Sexual lusts. Sounds like a porno site or an X-rated movie. And it certainly includes such behavior. But the term Peter uses is far broader. A fleshly lust is a natural desire that's gone haywire. A fleshly lust is a natural desire that's lost its bearings. It's a desire that in and of itself might be good and godly, but it's come untethered from the will of God. And it's now on its own. Think of a boat that comes untethered from its anchor. And now it's floating uncontrollably around the harbor, just smashing into stuff. Even other boats doing damage to itself and to everything that's in its path. This is a fleshly lust. Are you in this kind of struggle this morning? You see, a noble desire is to provide for your family. But this noble desire has swelled and morphed into an uncontrollable need to just make more money. What once fed your family is now destroying your marriage. We all have to eat. But has food become your pacifier? Do you drown your sorrows in a bag of potato chips? Or maybe alcohol has become your crutch. Life is really hard. It's easier now to just numb the pain than to deal with the issues. Some of you battle with depression or bitterness or hatred or fear. An uncontrollable drive for acceptance has trapped you into an abusive relationship. An unforgiving hatred causes terrible thoughts about harming another person. Out-of-control assumptions about how you should look or what you should weigh cause you to abuse your body. Sexual intimacy is a natural, God-given desire. But you cut the tide of what's biblical and healthy and even normal long ago. Today your desires rage out of control like an inferno. All these issues are a struggle. No, Peter says they're a war. And notice, fleshly lusts war against the soul, not just the body. Peter could have mentioned how fleshly lusts cause cirrhosis of the liver and STDs and heart disease and obesity. Out-of-control desires take a toll on us physically. But Peter says that they also war against the soul. They erode and eat away at our conscience. They do damage to our inner life, to our view of ourselves and our view of others. 
When an area of our life spins out of control, it creates a stress and a pressure our psyche was never meant to bear. Thus, psychological and emotional disorders develop. Depression can set in. Anxiety attacks. A fleshly lust will war against your soul, not just do harm to your body. And fleshly lust, worst of all, they'll wreak havoc on your faith. Even though you're a Christian, even though God has made you a living stone, part of a spiritual temple, if you're allowing a fleshly lust to run rampant in your life, it's hard to believe that truth. It's hard to believe that, that Jesus is really working in my life, that He really has saved me. I mean, you think living stones aren't always getting stoned. This is how an out-of-control habit wars against the soul. It cripples my faith. It undermines my belief in what Jesus has done for me and wants to do in me. It forces me further and further from the one who loves me and lives in me and frees me. Understand, once a normal desire gets detached from God's purpose and starts rampaging uncontrollably in your life, reining it in, trying to strike a truce, trying to handle it in moderation, it's no longer an option. Negotiating a compromise at that point doesn't win the war. At this juncture, there's only one winning strategy. Abstain. Peter doesn't say, you, you need to handle this in moderation. No, he speaks of abstinence. Peter writes in verse 11, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. The Greek word translated abstain means to hold away from one's person. To, to create a di distance, to create a separation between you and that desire. Here's what Peter is telling us. Once a desire spins out of control, you've got to let it go. Once a lust develops a mind and will of its own and begins to act in destructive ways, you can't go back to it and try to reel it in. You've got to create some distance between who you are and that desire. If the out-of-control habit is gambling, for, you know, just for instance, if it's gambling, then, then you've got to just stop gambling. You've got to stop hanging out with gamblers. You've got to stop going places where you gamble. You've you got to stop. You've got to distance yourself from that temptation. If it's alcohol, you've got to admit that moderation now is not, it's not a possibility for you. You're past that. You've got to acknowledge that you just can't take another drink. One drink and you're a drunk. You've got to admit that. As they say in AA, once you're a pickle, you can no longer be a cucumber. That's what you've got to admit. You've got to cut out any and all consumption. If your addiction is sex... You've got to commit to total purity. Reduce your exposure to harmful influences. Stop logging on and going places and seeing people and exposing yourself to things that are going to set you up for failure. And you've got to stop being too proud to admit the severity of your problem. Safeguards now become essential. If you suffer from a food obsession... You've got to empty out the cupboard. You've got to get rid of that stuff. You know, some issues can't be escaped. I mean, we have to work. 
We have to eat. We, we remain sexual creatures. But you see, what we've got to do is frame the out-of-control area of our life clearly. And then abstain. Then create some distance between ourselves in that desire and all that goes with it. And there can be no excuses. I've used this illustration before, but it deserves repeating. Imagine a rope five feet long. One end is tied to my ankle, and the other end is tied to a pit bull with rabies. And here I am, trying to live a normal life. I get up in the morning, I go to bed at night, in between I work, I come home, I hang out with my friends. Do you see a problem with this picture? Of course you do. There's no way that my life will have any semblance of normality as long as that pit bull is tied to my ankle. Oh, maybe for, for a few hours a day while the pit bull's asleep, but all in all, my life is in turmoil. I can't work because the dog bites and growls at my coworkers. I can't spend quality time with my kids because they're afraid of the vicious dog. My wife won't sleep with me because I'm bringing a pit bull to bed. I mean, the only friend who will have anything to do with me is Michael Vick, and he moved to Philadelphia. I mean, my whole life is in shambles. And I can spend thousands of hours in counseling, learning how to be a good employee and a better husband and a loving dad and a loyal friend. But face it, until I get that doggone dog off my ankle, nothing I do will solve my problems and help my life. That's why Peter says, abstain from fleshly lusts. Jesus said it too. If your right hand causes you to sin... Cut it off and cast it from you. Take desperate measures. Separate yourself from the source of that sin. Peter's saying something similar here. Abstain from fleshly lusts. Remember, these are desires that war against the soul. In other words, you're either killing the lust or the lust is killing you. There's a war going on. That means there's no sign in a truce. That means there's no sign in a treaty. That means there's no happy medium here. Joy and freedom can't coexist with fleshly lust. You know, when you came to Jesus, you were crucified with Him. He changed you. But now you need to crucify that fleshly lust. You need to turn it loose. You need to let it go. You need to declare war. You need to create distance between you and that problem you framed in your life. Galatians 5 verse 24 says it like this. Those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Then he says, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. He says, it's now time to, to go on the offensive with new habits. It's now time to think new thoughts, to develop new patterns, to start living a spiritual life. Yes, the Christian life involves a struggle. But through Jesus' help, you can overcome. In fact, it's vital that you do overcome because the stakes here are really high. Peter explains this to us in verse 12. He says, Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God 
in the day of visitation. Notice he assumes that the world is going to speak against you as evildoers. The Gentiles, or the unbelieving world of Peter's day, they were guilty of, of just this. They were floating hateful lies about the church. They were speaking evil against the church. They were stirring up false rumors and malicious slander against Christ's church. Over the years, there have been plenty of falsehoods told about me and about our church. In the early days, our informal atmosphere and our contemporary worship caused some folks to label us as a cult. Because we revel in God's extravagant grace, we've been accused of going soft on sin. Lies like this happen. But we have never suffered the injustices that were hurled at the early church. Did you know that believers in Peter's day, they were accused of cannibalism. It was a misunderstanding involving communion. Eating the body and drinking the blood sounded sinister. Oh, those Christians, they're, they're eating people over there. The church called its weekly meeting the agape feast or the love feast because they shared a good meal in a merciful way with those poor folks in the church that needed a good meal. But the world, they heard this name, agape feast, love feast, and they suggested that the name must refer to some kind of wild sexual orgy they're having there. Christians were viewed as antisocial since they didn't participate in Rome's lewd and violent entertainments. They were called atheists because they wouldn't bow down and worship Rome's pantheon of gods and goddesses. You see, the early Christians had volumes of misinformation to overcome. Yet overcome it they did. But not by debates. And not by rebuttals. And not by letters to the editor to set the record straight. No, they overcame the disinformation through the exemplary way that they conducted themselves. Living on the rock is what silenced their critics. Barclay writes of a time a few hundred years later. He says, in the early third century, the Greek skeptic Celsus made the most famous and systematic attack upon the Christians. He accused them of ignorance and foolishness and superstition and all kinds of things, but never of immorality. Why? Because by this time in history, the church had gained such a reputation for integrity and purity that most Romans found it hard to believe that there was such a thing as an immoral Christian. Hey, what kind of impact would we have on the world if people still saw us in that light? If we still had that kind of reputation? Today, the only time the church grabs headlines is when there's some sizzling scandal. We're not living on the rock. That's our problem. Never forget, your life is the only Bible that some people will ever read. I've heard it put like this. You're writing a gospel, a chapter each day, by the deeds that you do and the words that you say. Men, read what is written, either faithful or true. So tell me, what is the gospel according to you? In verse 12, Peter speaks of the day of visitation. He's probably thinking of a special day, a day at the end of the age, when Jesus returns to rapture away his church. But what if he's also thinking here of a very average day? A day like tomorrow, maybe. 
you wake up like any other day. But all through the day, Jesus is there. He, he's looking in. He's dropping in on you. What if tomorrow is take a Savior to work day? And Jesus is there. He's eavesdropping in on every conversation. He's privy to every text message. He's with you, participating in all your activities. It's open house all day long. Well, understand, this is your tomorrow and your today and your next day. For the God who is everywhere at all times declares every day the day of visitation. In closing, you're a pilgrim, friend. This world is not your home. You won't be home until you get to heaven. But along the journey, the Lord cares about your pilgrimage. And He's always dropping in. He's always making visits. Jesus assures us of our status. And He helps us in our struggle. And He reminds us that the stakes are high. In Christ, you are a living stone. But are you living on the rock? You know, our lives rest on a mammoth rock, not just a Plymouth rock. Jesus is no lame rock. That's why we need to be building a life that glorifies Jesus. Are you building a life that really rocks? I hope you are.